Hey folks, Shag here. Just a quick note before we get rolling. The language in this episode gets a little saltier than normal. Nothing you haven't heard before. I mean, we're all adults here. But just wanted to give you a heads up in case you're listening at work without headphones or you're in the car with your kids. Might want to throw in the earbuds this time. And if you hang around to the end of the episode, you'll find out exactly why the language is like this in this episode. And now, on with the show. This episode, Justice League International, number 23, cover dated January 1989. Hello. And welcome to the 23rd episode of Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name is the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but guess what? I brought along a friend. In fact, each episode, I invite a different guest host to help me tackle an issue of the JLI. My co-host today is another international guest, our third in a row. We've had folks from Canada, Australia, and now England. It's almost like someone intentionally planned for this Justice League International podcast to feature international guests. Clever that, huh? All right, folks, today's co-host is a lover of comics, television, and most pop culture from the 1970s and 80s. He's an accomplished podcaster and father. Believe it or not, those two jobs are intermingled for him more than most people. And when he's not talking about the Fantastic Four or chatting with his son, he can often be found slumming it with the past guest of this show, Michael Bailey. Maybe I can sum up our guest best today by uh, describing him as the love child or maybe the man child of Stan Lee and Glenn A. Larson. Folks, all the way from the English Embassy, please help me welcome Mr. Andy Leyland. Welcome to the Embassy, Andy. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you know, your decor is a lot nicer than ours. Well, we do spruce it up because, you know, in a month or two, we're going to have two books and you know, be very international. So we have a lot of flags and stuff like that. We dress it up. Yeah, I like that you've got British chocolate here. That, that was a nice touch, but I wanted some ho-hos. Oh, terribly sorry. I have some Jamie Dodgers in a drawer over there. Do you? Awesome. I always got time for a Jamie Dodger. <laughs> but, I mean, that's nothing compared to the Fantastic Cast waiting room. I mean, you guys have the ultimate nullifier just sitting there for anyone to use and play with, which is pretty sweet. Yeah, it's the negative zone portal you've got to watch out for, though. <laughs> We've lost many a person through that. I don't know if they ever came back. I don't care. As long as they recorded the show, I'm not bothered what happened to them. Right. I was going to say some of those podcasters were probably better off with that anyway. So really. <laughs> <laughs> Once they've been on my show, I don't really care what they do anymore. So Andy, we've talked before on various podcasts. We've talked about Doctor Who. We've talked about comic books. We've met in person. We've had meals together. We arranged this like, I don't know, two years ago. I think you even completely forgot. And you're like, oh, really? We're doing this? That sounds cute. Um, <laughs> it actually. Did that come across in the text? <laughs> I think I've learned to read what you say after a while, a little bit, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I said I'd do that, didn't I? Uh, all right. <laughs> so I I know you're a lover of comics. I have a question here. I've been thinking about this. So I looked at you reading our comics and things like that and sort of thinking about, okay, so the UK had a pretty robust comic scene in the 1980s. So I'm curious how you got into American comics because, you know, I Googled. 1980s British comic books, and I found all these names of people I've never heard of, folks like uh, Alan Moore and Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman and Brian Ballin and Alan Davis and Steve Dillon and, and a whole bunch of others. Now, none of those folks ever worked on the JLI, so I've never even heard of any of them myself, but maybe 
maybe you have. But with, with all this active comic scene in England, what drew you to American comics? American comics were cute. Cute? Yeah. Cute. Right. British comics tended to be weekly periodicals. So black and white, normally with stories hacked up into pieces. So the one I would read, 2000 AD is the prime example of a British comic. Right. It's four or five pages for each strip, five or six strips per issue. And the same with our comedy comics like the Beano and the Dandy, same thing. Marvel took that same approach when they made the Marvel UK market. So Planet of the Apes would have Planet of the Apes strips and backup strips from Kill Raven and other science fiction stories like that. So all the British comics were like A4 sized black and white reprints, normally five or six pages from an American comic per issue. So in Spider-Man comics, you'd have Spider-Man and then you'd have a backup strip of about eight pages of a Thor comic and eight pages of Iron Man. And that's how we were able to produce them weekly instead of monthly. I started noticing that in markets and in certain news agents in the various towns that we would go to in my surrounding area, they had these funny little American comics, funny little colour ones, my nan used to call them, when she'd go into a news agent <laughs> to ask because uh, she knew I liked reading comics. She said, do you have any funny little colour ones? And the guy, yeah, they'd be over there. So I discovered them primarily through just finding them in market stalls and, and in news agents. And one of the things that I liked about the US ones was you got a complete story. So I was reading Star Wars Weekly pretty religiously because Star Wars. Mm-hmm. But then right. I discovered that the American Star Wars comics was just Star Wars. It wasn't Star Wars and the Micronauts and ROM or backup strips from the old you know, the old Stanley, Steve Ditko, Twilight Zone type stories, four or five pages. It was a complete Star Wars story and a complete Spider-Man story. And so I started getting into the American ones simply because, I'll be honest, a lot of the times I didn't really care about what was going on in the Micronauts. Oh, that is heresy. You can't say that on this show. Well, I didn't mind the early ones with Michael Golden. I'll be brutally honest. I kind of think it went a bit off after that. I did like Rom. I liked okay. Rom an awful lot when that was getting backed up in Star Wars and and obviously when Spider-Man would publish The Incredible Hulk as a backup strip that was always cool but so I, I discovered the American ones like that but it was always it was a weird situation in that distribution was very sporadic I don't know if you know that most American comics got over here three months later because they were used as ballast on boats that's what I've heard yeah they just throw it in the bottom of the boat and that's how you got them that's crazy and that, yeah and that's how we got them so we got them three months later so the advantage of this was when I discovered comic book stores there was a comic book store in Manchester called Odyssey 7 any important issues that I missed. I just waited three months and got them off the newsstand. Okay. So there was advantages to that. Mostly what I was picking up was obviously Spider-Man, Hulk, Captain America, stuff like that. Uh, But from DC, primarily just Batman, Superman, and the team-up books. I did love Brave and the Bold and DC Comics Presents. Well, it's because you were a red-blooded, breathing person, so everyone loves those. (laughs) And that was where I I really discovered the wider DC universe, because the only DC book I followed religiously was the New Teen Titans. Mm. So, instead Stepping back from the American comics, I'm imagining little Andy Leyland, you know, watching his Knight Rider and reading <laughs> 2000 AD. Seriously? Like, I, I've read some of those and I'm like, mm, this is not for kids. Well, see, we, I don't know what it is. There could be some cultural what's it though, but 2000 AD wasn't quite as gory when I was a kid as it is now. For that, you looked to stuff like battle and action, which were, oh, okay. The, they had strips like Kids Rule OK, which was this bunch of feral kids who just started beating the shit out of adults 
Johnson taking over the country. And there was a spoof of Jaws with a shark who would eat people. These comics actually got banned and then shut down. Oh, wow. And then 2000 AD came along. I think our entertainment for kids has always been a little bit darker than yours. We had children's TV shows like The Children of the Stones and Chucky, hmm. the adaptation of John Wyndham stuff that were shit scurry yeah. when you watched them as kids. Children of the Stones particularly scarred an entire generation of kids that grew up watching it. Wow. Okay. Well, even Doctor Who was a little scarier than, uh, you know, back in the 60s than American TV was willing to do. Mm. So, yeah, I guess so. Interesting. Made you the man or man-child that you are today, sir. Mm. Yeah, I like dark. I'm not big on He-Man lecturing me. Okay. Well, then uh, today's comic should be right up your alley because this is a very dark, <laughs> deep, uh, depressing tale of uh, superheroics. So it perfect. is. It is. People get their arms <laughs> ripped off and they tear their own faces off. And God, it was it was too much for it, to be honest. I, I can only imagine that or they sit around and do nothing. One or the other, it's, it's something. We'll figure it out in a few minutes. <laughs> but before we do all that, why don't we take a second to thank our sponsor, folks. This episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, does InStockTrades ship over there? Not as far as I know. Okay. All right. So only for you cool kids on this side of the pond, <laughs> uh, we've got a couple different books to talk about. Because uh, each episode, what we do is we pick a collected edition that sort of relates to whatever we're talking about. Yeah, I didn't get that memo, did I? <laughs> No, no, you you really, really didn't. But you know, so yeah, we'll we'll just kick it off. We'll let Andy go first. So Andy, basically, all the cool kids that been on the, have been on the show, and we've been going for over two years strong here. All the cool kids have brought a comic that really is in theme with the issue that we're discussing. So, so what did you bring, Andy? Uh, I missed the line in the instructions that you sent. <laughs> I completely skipped over that line that said it should be in somewhere relevant to what we're talking about. I and I was just browsing through the, the in-stock trades website, which is a very nice website. And I thought, ooh, I know what'll be interesting that we could talk about. The Star Wars Marvel UK Omnibus, which is written and as art by various. Tony Dizunuga is the one who gets credited. It's all your favorite Star Wars characters, from Luke Skywalker to Darth Vader to the Ewoks. I thought they said <laughs> favorite. In Sensational Adventures first published a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. In Britain, in the 1970s and 80s. Now, for the first time, these really seen tales are collected in a single hardcover, along with a veritable treasure trove of UK-exclusive covers, pinups, posters, articles, interviews, star profiles, activities, and other goodies never before seen by American eyes. Savor early stories by classic British creators, tales slated for the US series but never published in America, and fascinating Star Wars rarities you didn't know existed. Collecting Star Wars Weekly issue 60, 94 through 99, 104 through 115, Empire Strikes Back Monthly 149, 151, and 153 through 157, and Star Wars Monthly 159, Ewoks Annual from 1989, Star Wars The Official Collector's Edition, and material from Pizzazz 10 through 16. Was $100, your IST price is only 40 bucks. You save 60%. That's a great savings. I mean, first of all, the 60% off is amazing, but wow, look at that material. Now, I will give you a bit of a pass, because even though it's completely unrelated to what we're talking about, <laughs> it does sort of fit our earlier conversation, and damn, I love this stuff. Mm -hmm. So, it, it gets a total pass. Now, also for the record, loves your American accent there, so does that give me rights to go, cool, blimey! <laughs> cool, blimey, governor! Get your strides on! You're nicked! <laughs> 
Way to Sweeney, son. <laughs> That's how I'll be reading the rest of the descriptions for the rest of the episode. Everyone, you can thank Andy for that. I think you should do that. I've, I've got this omnibus in front of me, and uh, it is cool. It is really good. So it's massive, I take it. Now, there's a ton of material in here. Do they also reprint the American original comics as well and just split it up the British way, or is it just the British original stuff? It's just the British original stuff in this volume. Essentially, this is volume four of Marvel's Star Wars Omnibus Range. Ah, and the okay. other three volumes printed all the American material. Gotcha. I mean, this stuff sounds amazing. First of all, I didn't realize they changed the name from Star Wars Weekly to Empire Strikes Back Weekly. That or oh, that's yeah, I had no yeah, idea. Yeah, that was that. that was common practice over here when okay. Spider-Man, the Nicholas Hammond TV show, debuted. The Spider-Man Weekly changed its name to Spider-Man TV Comic. And every week it would have a still from the show on the cover rather than artwork. Mm-hmm. And okay. Star Wars did the same thing. Star Wars Weekly became Empire Strikes Back Weekly, became Star Wars Monthly, became Return of the Jedi Weekly. So basically they always jumped onto whatever bandwagon was driving past at the time. It became Spider-Man and his amazing friends for a short time when that cartoon was erring. Perfect. Even though they only had one strip that they could publish that was Spider-Man and <laughs> his amazing friends, the reprint of the one issue Marvel US did. They right. renamed the comic Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. <laughs> well, this Star Wars stuff looks amazing. I mean, I've, I've read some of the British stuff, not a lot of it. I mean, of course, Pizzazz. I mean, that's legendary for being some of the first Star Wars expanded universe stuff. Mm-hmm. This is so cool, man. So for you, it's probably like, okay, this is what I remember. For us over here, it's like an untapped vein of Star Wars material from what we grew up on. Because I mean, my my first collecting of comics, really, I don't even, I didn't even consider it my collecting phase, but my first collecting of comics was the Star Wars comics. Those were the first ones I ever bought on a regular basis. Again, I didn't consider it collecting comics. I considered it collecting Star Wars. Mm. In fact, with an issue you and I talked about on a podcast that Michael Bailey recorded and never released. He, no, he's not released that. That was a great show, man. But, and not that we're both patting ourselves on the back, but yeah, it was. Yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about Star Wars number 50. Yeah, yeah, I remember that well. Yep. Because so, I was ugh. so excited when you picked it because I, I think I said when we recorded, I was so close to picking that one. Oh, well, it is, it's an amazing comic, but it's not in this omnibus, but so much more is. So mm-hmm. I, I think you picked a world worthwhile one there, sir. So thank you very much. I will go ahead and uh, share my pick for the group, which, oh, I don't know, maybe a bit more on topic. <laughs> but anyway, folks. Um, yeah, sorry about that. I turned this into a Star Wars <laughs> podcast for a minute. And truthfully, I don't think either one of us mind that that much. So I picked... Aquaman trade paperback by Peter David, volume two. And the reason I picked it because there is a fantastic tie-in to the Underworld Unleashed storyline, which some people may go, wait a minute, that's a sentence that doesn't make sense. It's Underworld Unleashed. But I like Underworld Unleashed. But the tie-in specifically is all about Major Disaster, who's a big villain in this issue. So anyway, this collects Aquaman issue nine through 20 and Aquaman annual number one, all written by Peter David. You get art by Marty Eglund, Jim Califor, and Joe St. Pierre. Probably said all those names wrong. Oh, well. Page counts 344 pages. Normally retails for $29.99, but you get an in-stock trade 42% off right now. It's only $17.39. The Peter David era of Aquaman is fantastic. I love it. A lot of people are like, oh, it's two nineties. Well, look at the direction the movies are going, folks, and look at the Peter David Aquaman. You're going to see a lot of parallels. I was just going to say the same. that I've seen a couple of trailers for Aquaman now, and it really does look like the bastard love child of Jeff Johns' run and Peter David's. Oh, that's a good way to put it. That is a good way to put it. Even though my, my podcasting uh, life mate, Rob Kelly, is not a big fan of the Peter David era. I am. I absolutely loved this Peter David era. I was all in. I had every kind of Aquaman poster on my wall with the hook hand. These are fun comics, folks. Trust me. And the, the major disaster issue is worth the price of admission alone. It's a fantastic one. So, folks, for these and all your trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Again, assuming you're on this side of the pond. 
All right. Well, we are going to get into this here, folks. And remember, we want to hear from you. Join us on the social media. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as JLI Podcast. You can use our hashtag PoundFWPodcast on Twitter. We'll find it. And it's all about building this community of JLI fans around this show. We want to hear from you. We want you to be part of the show. We want you to tell us why Andy's nuts or do your own <laughs> British accent. That would be fun to see that in social media. It, it, Governor. It would be very good. Yeah. Let me give you some tips. Nobody, nobody, nobody says, Core blimey, Governor, in real life. <laughs> But they do in all the movies. Oh, well, that, that makes it wholly accurate then. That's like me watching Superman 2 and believing Sheriff J.W. Pepper, who's in a James Bond film, but he's also in Superman 2. Same actor. <laughs> believing he is a pinnacle of your police force. Well, it's not that untrue. Uh, <laughs> and I will say, I, I live in the South. And just so you know, all of our bridges are out and we just jump them with our cars. And we just right over the ravine. That's that's what we do down here. So, Excellent. Yeah, that's legit. I, I want to come and live there now. <laughs> well, folks, now we know Andy wants to live here. Let's learn a little more about him before we let him into our borders again. Andy, could you please tell the people of home, what is your personal origin story of the JLI? How did you discover this wonderful team? How did you fall in love with it? And how was it an integral part of your childhood? Uh, I didn't, and it wasn't. What? <laughs> I love this question when people always wax effusive about how they love the Justice League. And I, I didn't know. I, I ignored it because Why I, did I invite you to I the have show? no idea. I have a general apathy towards the Justice League and super teams <laughs> generally. I, I grew up a Marvel kid. Uh, I read DC Comics sporadically, like I mentioned. I read Superman, Batman, and the team up books, which I didn't consider team books. The only exception to the rule, really, was the Fantastic Four which I don't consider a team. I consider them a family. Yeah. And the new Teen Titans, which, let's be honest, was a Marvel book that DC accidentally published. True. So the crisis came along and the crisis got me more interested in the DC side of it. But I didn't pick up any of this stuff until I found a, a complete run nearly, including all the 80-page giants in, um, in mm. cheapy bins in uh, Comet Marts in the 1980s. Okay. When you say complete run, you mean of Justice League in general or Justice League International or just Justice League Extreme, or like, which, uh, which, which, what did you find first? The Justice League did my Taeus Giffin stuff. Okay. Just that is what I tended to. And there was a couple of issues of the, was it Dan Jurgens who followed them? Yes, right. Dan Jurgens came in after them, the yeah, run, for the death of Superman and all that. Yeah, the run that I found ended about six or seven issues into his run. So that's where I that's where I picked up and that's where I stopped. So I haven't I didn't carry on and pick up the Justice League again until Grant Morrison took over. Okay. So did you find passion there at least? Oh yeah. I, I don't get me wrong. I like this one. I did read it and I, I <laughs> tore through all the issues when I eventually found them. But you're creating this this community of lovely Justice League fans. You think they're wonderful and grew up with them, and I'm like I, I didn't do that. Sorry. Found them later. As long as you like them now, I guess we'll let you continue on. We won't have to throw you uh, <laughs> oh, no, an I, embassy brig. I, I genuinely do love it now. Yeah, you can put me in the thing underneath the embassy, that control room where all the alien artifacts are held. Put me in there. Right. Oh, no, that would be brilliant. Yeah, that'll be equivalent of your waiting room for the Fantastic House. That'd be great. <laughs> well, now that you've found your love for this book, finally, oh, goodness, uh, <laughs> it, it, complete blasphemy. I cannot believe I'm even letting you on the show. So now that you've found your love for it, who, who are your favorite characters? And try to narrow it down to like one to three. Most people who come on the show can't count. I don't even think British people have schools, so I'm not sure if you can either, but uh, if you can keep it to three characters, that'd be great. I like Guy Gardner. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I genuinely do like Guy. I do gravitate to the ones who are a bit of an asshole. <laughs> you know, 
because he is. He's a massive yes. jerk. But his heart seems to be in the right place. And there's that lovely little storyline where he's trying to get off with... Is it fire that he's trying to cop off with? Uh, well, it, Ice is the one he ultimately ice, ends yeah. up with. But he, 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 you know, until there are a couple, I think he'll sleep with anybody that'll, that'll give him the time of day. And a lot of the time, like in this issue, we'll get into it when we get into, when we get into it. I think he's an excellent audience identifier. You know, if I was stood around this bunch of jerk-ass superheroes who can't tie their own shoelaces, I'd be infuriated as well. <laughs> So you're 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 arguing to make Guy Gardner the voice of reason. Yes. Okay, I see. <laughs> I, I, I don't think he's a reasonable person at all. He's certainly very, um, he's very narrow-minded in his field of vision. You know, it's his way and that's it. Yes. But, you know, that made a refreshing change in this book where everyone else was a bit of a goofball. He really was very unique because he was supposed to be sort of the, the viewpoint of the gung-ho, Rambo, Reagan-era, yeah, let's go was, get him kind of guy. He was exactly that, wasn't he? He was the 80s Rambo, now, next time we're invaded, I know what to do kind of character. But I, yeah. I, I, I I do have a soft spot for him. All right. Uh, any other characters you like, or is it just the jerks? Oh, no, no. I, I like Blue Beetle and, and Booster Gold's arguing. That's that's always fun. I, my The one I really did like a lot, though, was the Martian Manhunter. Just his, mm. his general exasperation about this whole situation was always <laughs> well done, particularly when Kevin Maguire was drawing it, because his command of facial expressions was just genius. It's unbelievable, especially in this issue. I mean, he's but if you compare his work in issue number one to like issue 23, where we are, it's just uncanny mm. how, how far he's come yeah. and what he's able to express. The, the the best descriptor I ever heard was he pulls out the acting of the character yes. with the facial expressions. It's yeah. very, very impressive. Well, uh, congratulations on identifying four characters instead of three. Well done. Goes to prove again, <laughs> England doesn't have schools. Perfect. All right. I, I run out of fingers. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right. Well, with that lovely comment, I think we're going to move into our next segment that I like to call... Monitor Duty. These are other comics that were on the shelves in the same month featuring JLI members. Now, this issue was on sale November 15th, 1988. Our thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. Other titles featuring JLI members on sale in November 1988. All right, first up, well, if we're looking at the entire team, the first one we got to talk about is Invasion number 2 by Keith Giffen, Bill Mantlo. Oh, Bill Mantlo, so good. You know he wrote Micronauts? It's a good comic. Anyway. The, the, um, the gold, Michael Golden issues are brilliant, and I love Rob. Pat Broderick issues are brilliant. All of them are brilliant, okay? Anyway, we'll have a talk after class. And uh, Invasion Number 2 also features artwork by one of your favorites, Todd McFarlane. So um, this major DC event continues, uh, and as you said, issue number two, and will have a major impact on the JLI as we get going here. And for more information on the DC Invasion comic crossover event, you got to listen to our network's First Strike Invasion podcast with past guests of this show, Siskoid, and his buddy Boss. It's a great show. They've been going through Invasion. They're actually just about to finish, and it's been wonderful. It, I also should mention that Maxwell Lord has a lot of cameos in other books this month. During the whole Invasion crossover, there's a lot of like little one-panel, two-panel scenes where he calls the heroes and says, you know, get your butt in here. And there's a great one with Firestorm that I remember as a kid going like, how does Maxwell Lord know who Ronnie Raymond is? Ah! Anyway, uh, so I'm not going to mention all the Maxwell Lord appearances, but just know Invasion number two is full of JLI characters, and Maxwell Lord appears throughout the DC books this month. That is a good podcast, the Invasion. I like the Invasion, the three-issue Invasion oh, series. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I love yeah, that book. Great fun. Uh, Captain Atom issue 24 was by Curry Bates, Greg Wiseman, and Pat Broderick, who you just mentioned. And Invasion. Oh, didn't he, uh, didn't he do Micronauts? Yeah, yes, it's a good book. Yes, hmm. he did some issues of Battlestar Galactica as well. And Invasion tie-in, the JLI guest stars as Captain Atom is appointed the commander of Earth's 
superhero forces against the alien invasion. Plus, Blue Beetle and Booster Gold get their first glimpse of Black Canary in her fishnet costume. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> it's not even in the worst. It's just a panel of them, like, craning their neck, like, as they see Black Canary for the first time in the fishnets, because they always knew her in the, as they call the Jazzercise costume. And they're just like, what? <laughs> Uh, we should mention that for more on Captain Atom, check out Jay Jones' coverage on the Silver and Gold podcast and the Splitting Atoms blog. Jay is also a past guest of the show. You know what I'm looking forward to? Being able to say that Andy's a past guest of this show. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Wonder Woman number 26 by George Perez and Chris Marinin, also an invasion tie-in, of course. Wonder Woman and Captain Atom track down a Durlin base and to rescue Steve Trevor. Now, for more on Wonder Woman, though not necessarily this era of the character, please check out our buddy Frank's uh, Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast. Again, that's by Diablo Frank, who's also a past guest of this show. Batman issue 429 was by Jim Sterling and Jim Aparo. A death in the family finale. Jason Todd is dead and Batman will stop at nothing to catch the Joker. For more on people who voted to murder Jason Todd, please see Rob Kelly, Shag's <laughs> podcasting life partner and killer of children. That's right. And unfortunately, this is the last uh, you know part of the storyline, so we can't use that joke anymore. More, but oh well. Now, by the way, Batman is going to stop at nothing to catch Joker, but spoilers, he doesn't actually do it. No, so, no, you know. he doesn't actually do it. Yep. Detective Comics number 595 was also on the shelves by John Wagner, Alan Grant, and guest artist Irv Novick, which is an invasion tie-in. Batman ends up in Cuba, tracking smuggled weapons and battling Cahoons and Thanagarians, because Batman doesn't want anything to do with the real invasion crossover. And for more on Batman during this era, please check out our network's Batman Nightcast by Chris Franklin and Ryan daily again both past guests of the show starman issue six was by roger stern and tom lyle blue beetle and power girl guest star in this invasion tie-in invasion was a important thing this month wasn't it well i i do wonder whether it's you know because sometimes crossovers are handled different ways i wonder if it was a mandate that they had to be part of invasion or if dc editorial just said look if you want to be part of it you can mm. starman helps with the cleanup in australia and then hitches a ride with blue beetle back to the united states for more on will payton starman check out the starman Manhunter Adventure Hour podcast by Aaron Head Moss, past guest of the show. Is there anyone who hasn't been on this? Uh, pretty much everyone who's cool has been on it, at least up until this point. Uh, everyone's been cool. <laughs> Piss now, off. <laughs> for Starman, check it out, folks. The current issues of Justice League by, I think, Scott Snyder. Uh, Will Payton shows up. Oh, my gosh. So, so excited to see him back in action. I'm really curious how that's going to play out because I love the Will Payton character. I love all the Starman, truthfully. But Will Payton was my first Starman. So, ah, so good. Also on the shelves was Dr. Fate number two by J.M.D. Mateus. Hey, I know that name. And Sean McManus. Uh, Eric and Linda Strauss continue their journey as the new Dr. Fate, this time battling the four of the Lords of Order? Wait a minute. Those are the guys they're supposed to be working with. Anyway, for more on Dr. Fate, check out the Lords of Order podcast by Ed Moore. Spectre issue 23 was by Doug Mensch and Chris Wozniak. An invasion tie-in. Dr. Fate guest stars as numerous supernatural characters come together to not fight the alien invasion. <laughs> Oh, those supernatural folks are dicks. Also starting this month was a brand new JLI-related series. So exciting. Mr. Miracle, number one, came out this month. Again, by J.M.D. Mateus. There's that name again. And Ian Gibson. Now, J.M.D. Mateus would all hang around for the first eight issues, but damn, they're good. In this story, Mr. Miracle, Big Barda, and Oberon move to the suburbs of New Hampshire, but Dr. Bedlam has plans to disrupt their suburban bliss. And about two months before Justice League Europe, in Animal Man 
issue seven by Grant Morrison and Chris Trogue, an invasion tie-in. Animal Man battles robots in Miami, as well as the suicidal washed-up supervillain from the 1940s named the Red Mask. Oh, those Animal Man issues are so freaking good. Mm-hmm, yeah. I know how much you guys love Grant Morrison, so I it, that and Doom Patrol were the first Grant Morrison stuff I ever discovered, so, so, so good. Yeah, that issue that ends with him getting his arm ripped off was a killer. Uh, man, issue number five with the coyote, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man. Uh, Flash number 22 by Bill Messner, Loeb's, and Greg LaRock was another invasion crossover. Uh, Flash is still in Cuba, mixing things up with the Mark Shaw Manhunter. And uh, because of you know, the way comics work, Flash also appeared that month in Manhunter number 9 with a tie-in by John Ostriger, Kim Yale, and Frank Springer. For more on Manhunter, check out the Flash Manhunter Adventure Hour podcast by Aaron Head Moss, past guest of the show. And uh, for more on Justice League Gear Up, don't forget we've already mentioned Captain Adam, Power Girl, Wonder Woman. I mean, these folks are everywhere this month, clearly trying to build some uh, excitement for Justice League Europe. And don't forget, for more on all of these invasion tie-in issues, be sure you're listening to the First Strike Invasion podcast, which they've covered all of them in wonderful detail. And also... The oh, I thought we were done. A key member of the Justice League got the greatest Batman stories ever told hardcover this month. Ugh, a classic really? collection of great Batman stories. The origin of Batman, the birth of Batplane 2, the origin of the Superman Batman team, Robin dies at dawn, half an evil, Man-Bat, the Batman nobody knows. Every single one of them a classic. See, what I just heard was bat, 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 bat. That's what I hear. Because, you know, everyone, and I don't know if I've ever espoused this on this show or not, but like, I feel like everyone in life goes through a Batman phase where they're just like all in on Batman and Batman's freaking awesome and he's just great and you'll love every story. And then most people grow out of that. That's typically how that works. I went through my Batman phase starting around 1989 or maybe 88, 89, somewhere in there. And it lasted till probably, I don't know, 1999, 2000, that kind of era. But then I just, you know what? I had read enough Batman stories and I enjoy the character. He's fun. I love him in certain books, but for the most part, I'm kind of done. But clearly you haven't grown out of your Batman phase yet, have you? No, no. I I tend to think that what you just said is true, but for the X-Men. Oh, okay. You have I, an well, X-Men I agree, phase. I agree with that too. Yeah, and you, you eventually, you get to the point where you go, ah, I've read all this and all they change the team that much that you don't give a shit anymore. And you move on but you know how can you not stay with batman it's really easy <laughs> really easy <laughs> now to be to, to pull back the curtain i am rereading batman no man's land right now but that still qualifies as uh books that i enjoyed during my batman phase so I, I i plead the fifth on that one still the best crossover that has ever been done in the batman books oh it's so good mm. it's so good all right folks well before we uh diverge too much further we are going to take a quick podcast promo break and when we come back we're going to talk about justice league international number 23 as Andy described earlier, the most brutal, vicious American comic he's ever read. <laughs> Can I get a tall chai? And a large black coffee. And I suppose you're here with no agenda, as per usual? On the contrary, I'm here for comics. I think I can help all of you. Hello, I'm the caffeinated Clinton Robinson. And I host a podcast called Coffee and Comics. On this podcast, I summarize, review, and discuss comic book issues, stories, and related media, usually in the span of time it takes to have a cup of coffee. Sometimes I'm joined by a guest, and sometimes I'm flying solo. So pour the coffee, take a sip, and turn up the volume as you listen to the Coffee and Comics podcast. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, 
and directly on coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. And remember, this is where the comics are never too old and the coffee is never too cold. The Long Halloween. Hush. Dark Knight Returns. The Killing Joke. These are all Batman stories that have been talked about and talked about countless times over the years. They are considered classics, and in most cases, that title is fitting. The thing is, Batman is nearly eight decades old, and whilst those stories are worth talking about, there are plenty of other Bat comics that are being attacked and overlooked. And that's where we come in. Hi, everybody. My name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Andrew Leyland. Andy and I decided that it was a crime that there were so many great Batman stories out there that weren't getting their due. To that end, we started a show. The Overlooked Dark Knight, a non-index index show. Our goal is to talk about the previously mentioned Overlooked stories and tell you why they're worth your time. The show comes out twice a month, with the first episode focusing on the back books from the late 70s and early 80s. We're starting with the Len Wein run and working our way forward through the books written by Jerry Conway and eventually Doug Mensch. On the second episode of the month, we'll dig into the various adventure comics that were based on the Fox Kids slash Kids WB Batman animated shows because they're really good and hardly anyone seems to remember that they exist. The show can be found at the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network, which is located at www.fortressofbailitude.com. The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Shining a bat signal on the bat stories that no one seems to remember or care about. Because somebody has to. All right, folks, we are back. And remember, if you want to see some panels on this issue, if for some reason you don't seem to have this comic in your collection anymore, make a note. I'm not speaking to you anymore if that's the case. But <laughs> you can go to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. We'll pick out some select panels. We'll put it up there on our website so you can check out the gorgeous Kevin McGuire artwork and uh, follow along with our discussion. This issue, we're talking about Justice League International number 23 from DC Comics, cover dated January 1989. Hey, look at that. The cover dates are back. And the cover price is 75 cents. Three shiny quarters for this many laughs. That's awesome. Cover is by Kevin McGuire and Joe Rubenstein. Andy, why don't you tell the folks home about the cover? Uh, the Injustice League stand on the same grid that Sapphire and Steel used to see in their opening credits, or <laughs> what the Rebels used to target TIE fighters. It could go either way. <laughs> Behind them, stars. Above them, only the Goram Earth. They are Big Sur, Major Disaster, Clock King, Multiman, and the Clue Master. Has there ever been assembled a more amazing group of villains? I mean, just wow. Wow factor right there. I, I, yes, I, I, I know that were these villains to oppose me, I would be quivering in my bat boots. <laughs> or in my case, I looked at them all and went, who? And the guy in the orange, <laughs> yes. I go, I think I kind of remember him from who's who. That was I, about the extent of it. I looked at this covering as well. I think I kind of remember the one who was Stephanie's dad. Was it Stephanie from Robin? Yep, same one. Yep, um, Clue Masters, and, I was talking about too. And that's obviously the Clock King. I did not recognize Big Sir, even though I remember him pummeling Barry Allen's face to unrecognizability in the yep. trial of the Flash. And I had no idea who the Mekon looking guy with the pointy ears and, and the other man with the thigh high pink boots were right absolutely. he kind of he kind of looks like zoltar from battle of the planets <laughs> 
<laughs> you can call him that in your recap if you'd like. So um, now, I do have to correct one thing. I know you were desperate to work on a Firefly reference, which I really liked the way you did that, but that's the moon. So it is, yeah. The craters give it away. Yeah. Unless unless something horrible has happened to our planet, uh, that's not really going to fly. You know, that grid also looks a lot like Kung Fury, if you know what that <laughs> is. <laughs> But that's more recent. Of course I know what that is doing. Hasselhoff's in it, dude. Oh, that's right. That's right. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. If you haven't looked it up, folks, look up Kung Fury. Then send us a thank you letter. <laughs> but anyway, um, also a blazing across the cover. This is Invasion Aftermath Extra. Uh, this issue of uh, Invasion Aftermath tie-in, it takes place between Invasion number two and Invasion number three. So this is after the war has concluded in issue number two and before the gene bomb, because everyone loves that name, is detonated <laughs> in issue number three. So we'll find out. I do love it. It's also said versus the Injustice League. Because I didn't think about this, but this is the first time they've ever used the phrase Injustice League, as I understand. You know, it always had been Injustice Society, you know, the Secret Society of Supervillains. But as I understand it, this was the first time the term Injustice League was ever coined. Hmm. Well, if Martian Manhunter gets his way, it'll be the last time anyone ever says it. That is that is very true. <laughs> All right. Well, inside this issue, plot and breakdowns done by Keith Giffen, script by J.M.D. Mateus, penciler Kevin McGuire for a little bit longer. Inker Joe Rubenstein, letter Bob LePan, colors Gene D'Angelo, editor Andy Helfer, and there is a new name here, ladies and gentlemen, introducing Kevin Dooley, who's uh, listed as King of the Universe, which apparently means assistant editor. But uh, <laughs> as uh, this is his first professional DC Comics work. Again, assistant editor Kevin Dooley, welcome to the fall. The issue is entitled Gross Injustice. Andy, why don't you kick us off? A small island in the Pacific. The JLI are performing cleanup detail on a downed spaceship, a job that pleases no one, especially Guy Gardner. So bored is Guy that he takes it upon himself to remove the spaceship, but being Guy, he doesn't actually bother looking at stress levels or if the ship can handle being moved around by a GL construct, and it crumbles under its own weight. Guy's reaction is suitably restrained. On a neighbouring <laughs> island, the Injustice League and some guy named Bruce try to get the Thanagarian spaceship they have found working again. Clock King is miffed by how long this is all taking, Multiman is being a bonehead, and Big Sir tries to comfort everyone. Major Disaster is more positive, feeling that with this spaceship under their command, they will be taken seriously as a super team of evildoers. Clue Master is wisely staying out of the way, humming sitting by the dock of the bay and taking in the view. Clock King happens by and they chit-chat about Major Disaster's plans, grandiose schemes like killing Superman, taking over the world, or robbing a bank. Clue Master <laughs> is sure he saw movement on a nearby island. Over on that nearby island, the JLI continue to do what they do best, bicker. Fire is sure she saw movement on a neighbouring island. Bruce finally gets the Thanagarian ship working and Major Disaster takes a moment to talk to himself about how great this will all be. Unfortunately, his rantings are caught on radio and transmitted over to the ship that Guy and Mr. Miracle are working on. Guy takes off following the signal. I'll take it from here. So as the Injustice League take their new spaceship out for a test drive, Guy Gardner comes along and knocks on their door. Quite literally. The Injustice League evade Guy Gardner, though not on purpose, and our villain's ship elevates into the upper atmosphere. Guy Gardner pursues the escaping vehicle, while the heroes of the Justice League pursue Guy Gardner. While the Injustice League bicker with one another, you know, perhaps they really are well-suited as adversaries to the JLI with all this bickering, uh, Guy Gardner begins his attack by flying through the outer shell of the villain's ship, leaving enormous holes in the ship's hull. Apparently hitting something vital, the Injustice League ship begins to plummet to the ground. Martian Manhunter demonstrates his 
his Superman-level powers by catching the falling ship mid-air like the only worthwhile scene in Superman Returns. <laughs> However, this doesn't stop Guy Gardner from punching additional Guy Gardner-shaped holes through the hull of the villain ship. Back in the South Pacific, our heroes turn the Injustice League over to the authorities. While Major Disaster threatens to get even with Martian Manhunter, Jean then returns the threat by stating the JLI lawyers will be in touch regarding copyright infringement for using the name Injustice League. As the villains are taken away, Major Disaster's teammates have had enough of his shenanigans as they proceed to beat him up on the way to jail. The JLI return to cleanup duty. Guy Gardner is once again frustrated with the team's job of having to clean up after everyone else. Mr. Miracle warns Guy to be careful around all this unknown alien hardware. Some of it might be dangerous. Guy throws a major temper tantrum and starts kicking random alien machines, pretty much just to spite Mr. Miracle. And at that moment, all the comic panels invert colors. Everything turns black with line work that's actually colored white. It's really an interesting effect. The JLI sort of freak out about the inversion effect, and Martian Manhunter suspects that it might just be guys doing. And that is the cliffhanger, folks. Next issue, The Deadly Secret of the Atmospheric Inversion, is revealed in Invasion Book 3. And next month, our gala overstuffed second anniversary issue. And for those of you at home, no, Guy did not cause the gene bomb to go off. <laughs> but it sure looks like it if you read this issue. Yeah, it looks like it was his responsibility, doesn't it? Yeah, works well with our love of Guy Gardner. So yeah, yeah, what do yeah. you think of this one, bud? Uh, absolutely jackal happens in this comic. <laughs> Nothing, that is true. nothing happens. Essentially, the Justice League sunbathe for an issue, while Gar Gardner and Mr. Miracle try and work on a spaceship, and then over on the other island, a bunch of no-hope losers are also working on a spaceship. Nothing of import happens at all. Now, is that a bad thing? It isn't, actually, because this, actually, this ended up being really fun, and yes. it was only when I got to the end of it, I was like, nothing, what, 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 what was this about? <laughs> It's very true. I mean, this issue really um, exemplifies the direction this book's going. I mean, this is a like a template for what the Justice League will be. You know, there's this major crisis going on, and the Justice League is involved, but in like the most mundane way possible. You know, instead of being in the front lines fighting the aliens, the, the Justice League's doing cleanup duty. It's ridiculous. And the villains of the piece are completely ineffectual and are also caught up in incredibly mundane activities. That's what the Justice League becomes about. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase another website, our our buddy Walter, who runs Boosterific.com, he summed it up as, this is more Keystone Cops than Independence Day. Because <laughs> you're looking at this, I'm reading this, and I was actually wondering, do these people actually even like each other that much? No, no, they don't. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> I, I did wonder when I was reading it, because were people upset with this at the time? Because it seems to me like you would want the Justice League to be at the forefront of an alien invasion story. And they're not. They're just kicking back on this, this Hawaiian island, doing booger all right right well in this really i don't want to say this issue is the turning point i think it started earlier around issue 15 where the comedy started becoming just as important as the superheroes and you know the character really started driving a lot of the stories but this i would say this is definitely you know sets the course for most of the rest of the series and this would be a point where people would decide to jump on or jump off but i think history shows that more people jumped onto the book at this point or or were happy with the direction because based on the sales numbers and the and literally the franchise that's about to explode Hmm. surrounding this book. So I think that demonstrates that people were loving this new direction. Because, I mean, it was so different for a DC comic. I mean, look at what DC had been publishing up to this point. And and this is almost like a reaction to something like Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen. It's almost, you know, a response to that, it seems like. Yeah, over in Batman, a 16-year-old kid's been beaten to death with a crowbar. And over in Justice League, you've got a bunch of goofballs making bad jokes. 
Right, exactly. So it gives you a chance to, you know, you can read your dark, dark, darkity dark comics and then have a laugh. And in a lot of times, Batman's in both of them. In this case, <laughs> Batman doesn't appear this month. In fact, several people don't appear this month. We don't, we don't get Hawkman and Hawkwoman. We don't get Batman and we don't get Captain Adam. Now, you could sort of explain it either because the writers didn't feel like they were necessary to the story or it's because of the invasion tie-ins. You know, Batman's in Cuba. Captain America, um, Captain America, sorry, Captain Adam uh, is leading the superheroic forces. And, you know, Hawkman's making his appearance in Animal Man, uh, which was actually last month. But so it could be that. But characters are doing stuff in other books all the time. So I think it's just a case the writers didn't have anything to do with them this month. I don't think Captain America would tolerate any of these people. <laughs> well, he didn't hang around for the brown jacket of Avengers era, so probably, probably not. Probably no. no, I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, the, the opening of it is really fun. I mean, I, you just get John's exasperation throughout the entire issue, having to deal with Blue Beetle especially, just seems like he doesn't take anything at all seriously. Right. Even less than everyone else does in this issue. I would argue, actually, that Booster is the one who does the least. Booster... I don't think he ever gets off his butt. He sits there on the beach. In fact, he makes a sandcastle at one point. They don't make a big production out of it. But if you look, he's sat there and played and made a sandcastle. He he does nothing. It, it's almost like they, they, this issue with him sitting on an island is like what inspired him for the Kui 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 story years later. But it's it's hilarious. Now, okay, Booster does nothing. Uh, fire, Ice, Rocket Red, none of them do anything this issue other than talk. Blue Beetle actually at least flies the ship for a few minutes. That's so he does true, something. Yeah. Fire and Ice. Most, probably working on the tans. Yeah, probably at this point. I mean, they were treated sort of that way at this point. And really the stars of this issue, if you will, are Guy Gardner, Martian Manhunter, Mr. Miracle. And I would still say Blue Beetle's a bit of the star of the issue because he does get some stuff going. And I'm glad you mentioned Martian Manhunter's exasperation because, and you mentioned earlier, Kevin McGuire's facial expressions. There are stunning facial expressions in this one. I mean, the first one's right on page two. Hmm. And, you know, in the bottom right-hand panel, that gorgeous expression by Martian Manhunter, just shocked, like, what the hell's happening? Why is this happening right now? Aren't I in charge of this team? That's what that face says. Yeah, I, uh, you've got to look at the, the progression of panels on page two as well, where Blue Beetle and Mr. Miracle are just arguing with each other. The the facial expressions on both of them in panel three are absolutely brilliant. When uh, John Johns turns around and snaps at them, enough. And yes, sir, Mr. Martian Manhunter, sir, you've got the smug. You get yeah. that completely from Blue Beetle's facial expression. And Mr. Miracle's a bit more contrite with, eh, you got it, boss. <laughs> so good. I like to think by this point that Maguire was challenging himself. I mean, I'm, this mm. is totally me guessing here, but Maguire's already demonstrated his master for, mastery of faces, so I wouldn't be surprised if he's pulling out reference material on really, a, you know, unusual facial expressions going, can I capture that look? Can I capture a smug? Okay, boss. And he does it. He made it work. It's You just didn't see this kind of level in comics. People couldn't do this level of illustration. It's, no. it's gorgeous. No, it is. It's completely different to what was just about to happen with the arrival of McFarlane and Jim Lee and, oh, and all yeah. the image guys. You see Essentially, what you've got here is Kevin Maguire making a script that is just a bunch of people talking to each other, visually interesting. And you've, yeah. got, you've got to ask how many artists of this era could have pulled this off. You mentioned the 90s, and that's a good thing, folks. I love the 90s comics. I truly do. But if you go back and look, pretty much every cover is, in interiors is somebody's face in sort of a slight aggressive yell. Their mouth is hanging open slightly. They're like, ah! 
and that's pretty much everybody's face in every comic. Mm. Um, and so Kevin McGuire, as you said, really stood out above the pack as bringing out that acting. Yeah, and his, his body language and the way he draws people's different frames and everybody looks facially different to everybody else. There's no right. stock faces here. Like people would say about John Byrne, all his women look the same. Or even Kurt Swan gets the, well, these people look similar. There's only really George Perez, I think, who can stand up to Kevin Maguire for making everybody look facially different. And he pulls that off. One of the best places to look at this is in black and white. Uh, and if you can tell who the people are in black and white about the colour of the costumes, you, you've got a good artist. Every, wow. every single one of these people's faces is different. They've got a different shaped nose, different shaped chins. Top of, of page four, where essentially you've got Fire Ice, Martian Manhunter, Booster Gold, Rocket Red, Mr. Miracle, just stirring essentially at the audience at something that's off panel. Look at the facial structures. Look at the artwork. Look at the depth in the art. Every single one of them is a different person. He's not just got a stock repertoire of faces that he's using. And, and it's all the same expression. They're all shocked and like horrified by what's happening. But you're right. Each one is a different way of expressing it. Mm. So yeah, that whole page is wonderful. I love the, the Guy Gardner body language when he's cursing. And what they do, folks, he's screaming at the heavens. He's so mad. And it's this giant, you know, uh, burst out word balloon. And there's just an asterisk. That's all it is. There's no words in it. It's a giant open white space. And it says expletives, lots of them deleted, which is hysterical. I love that because, you know, as you said, Guy Gardner handled it quite well. Mm, uh, the lead up to this gag is brilliant as well, where Guy Gardner's just getting on with it. And right. Ice is the one who's saying, well, he's kind of got a point. And Mr. <laughs> Miracles, eh, I, I kind of think we should have tested for, for stress levels and whether the ship's up to it. And Martian Manhunters, what do you mean stress levels? Well, I wouldn't want it to smash, <laughs> fall apart. And you can just see that is something that they would have done in a TV show. Like Tom Selleck would have pulled that off in Magnum. Just, okay. just the expression and the looking at the camera and the raising the eyebrows. And it's a wonderfully structured and written comedy beat, especially seeing as the top two panels are all of the faces, the reactions to it happening in the top and bottom panel. And then the, the middle one, which covers most of the page, covers about three quarters of the page, is Guy Gardner's just reaction to the fact that he's fucked up big time. He's brilliant. <laughs> You know, I hate to say it, but I think Ice and Guy are right. I mean, just getting down to it would have made a lot more sense. Just get the job done. Mm. But it makes it funnier by going slower, obviously. Yeah. So so going on a bit here, you know, it, when we start talking about the Injustice League, and we'll talk more about them in a minute, but Clue Master actually seems to me to probably be the brightest one of the bunch because everyone else is... You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's saying something, isn't it? Right. I know. The guy who's like a poor man's Riddler, he, he's, he's sitting on the beach. He's had enough of the other bickering. He, he's, you know, everyone else is bickering and fighting again justice league and justice league there's there's such a mirror going on there and, and clue master's like yeah they're a bunch of bozos I, I got nothing i'm just sitting on the beach chilling out as you said singing dock of, uh, sitting by the dock of the bay he um he sees the whole ridiculousness of the endeavor like the whole uh, the, like the audience does so i'm props to clue master well done sir might be why he's able to get his game on and actually have a kid yeah yeah i, I do love um clock king coming over and saying well we get to vote on what we're going to do later and he's the <laughs> clue master's like, oh joy so you get the kind of impression clue master's not terribly impressed with Major Disaster. Yes. But why would you be? Let's be honest, having read this comic, I'm not impressed with Major Disaster. It, it took another 10 years or 12 years before they did anything interesting with that character, so absolutely. Now, I gotta mention, you, you've already talked about it, the the fact of Kevin McGuire taking the script of people just 
talking and making it interesting. My favorite is page nine, mm-hmm. which is just – it is the perfect example of talking heads. You hear a lot about people complaining about comics or you know, some people attribute you know Bendis, you know, whatever, where it's just two heads of people talking and they say it's so boring. And yet Kevin McGuire proves all of them wrong. It is a, a repeated eight panels of, of uh, Mr. Miracle and Guy Gardner talking and the whole book is worth the price of admission for Guy's face throughout this 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 page he goes from exasperated to the most toothiest shit-eating grin just because he knows he's pissing off mr miracle it is brilliant i love this page yeah that's because unlike alex maleev kevin Maguire just doesn't copy and paste the same panel eight times that's true that is very true. kevin Maguire actually draws each one of these panels individually paying attention to what the dialogue is saying and drawing their facial expressions to match the dialogue that panel with guy gardner and the toothy smile i mean yeah he is literally Literally, for the audience's sake, he is celebrating his own dickishness yes. in that panel. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I like him. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm a dick, but what are you going to do about it? <laughs> I mean, he really is yeah. wonderful in this issue. I mean, in real life, I would absolutely hate him. There's no doubt about that. Uh, he's Tom Island in um, True Lies. Okay. Yes. Yes. You know, and the, everything he says is pure comedic gold. He's just, everything works perfectly with this character, which explains why so many people love him. Like, if you're a Guy Gardner hater, reread this issue, and I bet you're going to turn around and you're going to say, okay, yeah, he's horrible, but I love hating him. I yeah. love it. And also, he, he has a point. Yes. You know, we're, all of this. we're on the shitty cleanup duty. Let's get it out of the way as quickly as possible. Right. I mean, think about it. they got to clean the entire planet, and the Justice League is spending... A whole day fiddling around with one ship mm-hmm. so uh yeah they're not going to get this done anytime soon because you know superman would just swoop in pick up this crap and leave he wouldn't even he'd just throw it in the sun and you know it might make a nuclear man out of it but whatever he just gets the job done now page 17 we do get what would be by today's standards a unacceptable joke about the uh, premenstrual anger i was kind of surprised to see that i even did a little search in the internet to see if anyone you know in, in sort of hindsight reviews have gotten their backup about it i didn't find anything so uh, apparently this joke is sort of slid under the radar but uh, it was kind of surprising to see something that would not fly nowadays no no i, th- I thought that when i read it i thought oh a period joke that's a little bit uncomfortable yeah and then uh because we have to talk about batman because apparently <laughs> you're still in your face yes. batman even though he's not in here his spirit is sort of felt because uh he gets referenced like what three times yeah martian manhunter and, and batman's leadership styles i liked rocket red in this issue as well all he does is do pithy asides yes. and because he's russian no one gets that he's being funny <laughs> he's the Yakov Shmirnov of the JLI at this point but and I don't mean that in a bad way you know because you know he's appearing all over the place uh, on television and being funny and, and Yakov was in the 80s hmm. and here that's what Dimitri's doing he's cracking jokes he knows he's being funny and it's the other people just aren't getting it they just think he's a clod but that's not the case at all Dimitri knows exactly what he's doing yeah yeah. I mean my other favorite bit in this is a good, another guy Gardner bit where the Martian Manhunter's trying to stop the spaceship like you said like in Superman Returns he's trying to do it all civilly and make sure nobody comes to any harm and then you just have this massive sound effect and he comes barreling through the front of the ship and just his expression on his face there he's laughing with maniacal glee that he's just <laughs> getting to destroy this spaceship it's absolutely brilliant it's really funny 
Well, his excitement when when you were doing the recap when he figures out that there's bad guys there, mm. and he's so, on, on page eleven, he's so excited. He's like, "All right, let's go kick some ass!" Yeah, which is great. It, rem- it reminds me of a, an earlier issue when they went to the Soviet Union, uh, and guy was like, "Oh, Russians, okay," and he got excited again, like a little kid in a candy shop. But he runs out there, it's like it's time to fight! Hooray! Ah, <laughs> oh, he's brilliant, and, and I love how they painted the cliffhanger to make it look like the Gene Bombs guy's fault. That's yes, hysterical. That is funny. I, the, the thing I just go back a page or two though. The, the ending is so downplayed. Guy flies yeah. through the spaceship and you'd expect in a normal book there would be some kind of confrontation. But the next scene is just the, the police you've shown up, the Air Force or whatever, and they're taking him away. That's yes. it. There's no preamble. There's no big fight scene with the Injustice League. I do like Martian Manhunter's line about, um, well, that name's copyright infringement, so you'll be hearing from our lawyers. <laughs> I thought that was genuinely funny. <laughs> The, the Injustice League are so different from any other, because like you said, there was no confrontation. The team is completely played for jokes. They don't give you any info on the characters other no. than their name. I mean, you know nothing about the characters. You know nothing about their powers. Seriously, these these bad guys, they could have been anybody. They could have used any fourth-rate characters, given them interesting, bickering personalities, and it still would have worked, which I think is some way, is kind of the genius of the way the team works. It's, yeah. The powers are irrelevant. I mean, it could have been the anti-monitor on the team. It doesn't really matter. No. It's as long as they can bicker and it's i do wonder how major disaster has ended up being in charge right <laughs> i mean he, he does the whole maniacal talking to himself a lot which i suppose is a qualification for being a bad guy just ask dr doom but he, right. <laughs> he seems to be easily the worst one of the lot of them with the possible exception of big sir well at least big sir's heart's in the right place he's just simple yeah yeah disaster is a disaster absolutely which is probably why when they were you know mapping it all out they're like all right let's make the leader be completely an idiot and uh and that's probably why he made sense to make him the boss because it just fits with the whole group and again because if you put clue master in charge it probably would have been too reasonable <laughs> they probably have been like okay this is bad let's you know cut bait and run but instead major disaster just wants to make it worse and worse yeah and and the, the other ones do have some good reaction shots when guy smashes through the ship enjoying himself immensely big sir's just ooh, nice big window and i love yeah. clue master's optimism as well i hope he didn't hit anything vital <laughs> and, uh, he kind of did and the ship just kind of plummets well, we got to mention Bruce. Bruce yeah, who is... Who the hell is Bruce? <laughs> Bruce is uh, Major Disaster's old prison cellmate, basically, is what it is. They were in jail together. And Bruce just says he knows machines, so Major Disaster hired him. So you've got all these villains standing around, which, by the way, if they're stealing a spaceship and they're in the middle of the South Pacific, what's the point of really wearing their costumes, hmm. the, the villains? What's the point advertising that they're supervillains? Because, you know, Bruce is just there in T-shirt and jeans, which is hysterical. And it's kind of like, you know, it's probably what I would wear if I was stealing something like that because I wouldn't want to draw attention to myself. So Bruce stands out like a sore thumb. He's got these big 80s glasses. He's supposed to be, you know, your 80s hacker, I guess. <laughs> but he's, he's he's like a complete regular guy and he's like, he also speaks to the absurdity of it because he's like, you know, they're like, you know, attack this, attack Guy Gardner. And he's like, I don't know what to, do. I don't even know how to do that. <laughs> yeah, so they just start pressing buttons at random. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh dear God, they were inept. Such a fun, it's just a very clever way to show the ridiculousness of supervillains. And also, also to sort of make fun of the book itself. I mean, when Giffen and Dave Mateus wrote this, they had to know that the Injustice League was a purposeful parody of the current Justice League. To, to, to know that they were parodying their own characters with all the bickering. And, uh, it works and mm. it's hysterical. Yep, it is. Good stuff. All right. I got to go back to Rocket Red. One last thing. I, I should wrap it up here, but I just love the bit where Rocket Red's complaining that his armor is not working right. He's too hot and Ice offers 
to ice him up. And, you know, he's like, I don't know if my wife would approve of such behavior. Again, he, he knows what he's doing. He's pulling everyone's leg. But it's, you know, sort of a sexual joke, but a little innocent. It's funny. It cracks me up. Because Ice and Dimitri are two of the most, uh, you know, friendliest of all the teams. So to put make her feel awkward, I just find that hilarious because I'm a bit of a jerk. I just hear Chekhov. Pavel, not Anton. Right. I was just <laughs> making a little joke, my friend. It was invented by a little old lady from Leningrad. Again, I hear Yakov Shmirnov in my head, which is great. <laughs> so that's the book there, folks. Uh, again, nothing happens at all. But uh, in, the, in the letters page, there are some fun letters. Um, again, uh, Kevin Dooley has joined the fold now here. But there are uh, some information here, like issue. No- they say in the letters page, issue number 25, Ty Templeton will be our new regular penciler. Hooray. Uh, they make a reference to Justice League Europe, which is great. And also, there's a, there's a whole section on suggestions for reader from the readers for new members of the Justice League, which included Firestorm, Blue Devil, Ambush Bug, Will Payton, Starman, Mark uh, Manhunter. I'm sorry, Mark Shaw, Manhunter. So many of my favorite characters would have loved to have seen them in the book. They clearly got a ton of mail. Unlike other books where they just print a few letters, they have to like paraphrase and they name check and they do you know like 15 people ask for this character. So I mean, wow, they really the mailbags were overflowing for JLI mail, which is fantastic. Good for them. Yeah, they even have to narrow it down to questions at the back end of the letters column, don't they? Including yeah. one guy who's ahead of the curve who's asking for colorists to get credited on the cover. Mm, I didn't notice that. That's interesting. All right. Very cool. Well, they certainly deserve the credit. I mean, considering how much they add to the comic. Mm-hmm. You read a black and white version, you read a color version, it's a world difference. Yep. So. All right. Well, there is a couple of house ads we should just make a quick reference to. One is a half-page ad advertising Suicide Squad. It says, 10 reasons to buy Suicide Squad in 1989. And of course, you've got the, the team there of that area. You've got Ravon, Dr. Light, Punch and Julie, Duchess, Bronze Tiger, Vixen, Shade, Count Vertigo, and Captain Boomerang, which uh, by Luke McDonald, too. Yeah, very, very nice, that. Now, you mentioned Team Books. Was this one of the books you read? Uh, I've never read Suicide Squad. Wow, really? really? Oh, my gosh. I've, nev- I've never read Sturman, either. Well, it's been nice talking to you, Andy. Um, <laughs> su- seriously, Suicide Squad is so, so very good. Don't judge it by the movie, please. Uh, God, no. <laughs> you love the 80s, so I think then you love... Now that you've come around on Justice League, I think I think this is you... I think you'd enjoy this. Well, the next time they have a comicsology sale, I'll pick up the first tread. All right, folks, for more on Suicide Squad, of course, listen to the Task Force X podcast by our buddy Aaron Head Moss. All right, and the other house ad. Now, there's not a lot of house ads this month. I guess that means they've got a lot of what Eminem and Zit Cream ads in here or something. Probably they were getting ad revenue. Um, The other one is for an Invasion house ad. It's similar to the one we saw last month, the Daily Planet, Invasion Aftermath. It's basically just a text piece with a map of the world to try and advertise other books. They give you little rundowns of what's going on in Cuba and Moscow and Cape Canaveral and parts unknown and da da da. They tell you all these major areas and it's sort of hinting on what's going on other books. For example, I'll just read the parts unknown one because it's relevant here. It says, everyone's asking, where's the Justice League International? Sources close to the superhero team indicate that the group has taken a lull in activity following the withdrawal of the alien invasion troops to take a vacation. Though the name and location of their resort remains officially unidentified, all indications are that the heroes are not receiving the rest they were hoping for. So that's sort of like a roundabout way of advertising the Justice League book to the rest of the world. And uh, it's, it's clever. And you get Firestorm gets recognized and Batman and all these other folks. So it's good stuff. Although I will say, I don't know as a kid, I would want to sit down and read this and really interpret what book I had to read next. <laughs> I think I've only ever read the three uh, main issues, I think. Really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, n- now you've read one more. Yes. <laughs> All right, folks, because Andy hasn't done enough of the heavy lifting in this issue, I'm going to give him a job in a segment I like to call Character Spotlight. 
This is where the guest is asked to share some thoughts on one of the characters from this issue. Andy didn't bother doing his homework, so I did it for him. Uh, it's not really... <laughs> You're not supposed not really... to tell people that. Oh, so sorry. Uh, it's, uh, that was just an accident. That came out. I promise it will come out in editing. Bullshit. No, it won't, folks. Anyway, um, so what we're looking for is just some information on these characters. And this month, we've asked Andy to tell us a little bit about the infamous, the horrible, the vicious Injustice League. Major Disaster is apparently a petty crook who stumbled into the secret identities of the Silver Age, Green Lantern, and Flash, and used that knowledge to make himself a villain capable of causing natural disasters at will. Many years after this issue, he joins the JLA during Joe Kelly's storyline entitled The Obsidian Age. I'm glad you've given me all this, because I I would not have got that from this comic. (laughs) Oh, 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 believe me, this all came from research. None of this came from the comic. (laughs) Now, I do remember Obsidian Age, and I really liked the way they worked Major Disaster into the book, because Superman sort of brought him in as like a, a chance for Major Disaster to reform himself. He then goes on to join, um, oh, was it Justice League Elite or whatever that miniseries was? Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a hero for a little while. And he's an interesting character. And his powers get insanely ramped up during Underworld Unleashed. It's really, really clever. I, do you remember that Aquaman issue at all? Vaguely. It's it's like, remember the game Mousetrap? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's almost like that where he can see, he, he knows if he moves this pebble from here to there, basically, it causes this, you know, butterfly flaps his wings and a hurricane on the other side of the world kind of effect where all, the, the tiniest little thing causes this ripple of uh, resulting in major disasters. It's amazing the, the way they ramp him up. I, I remember him dying in Blackest Night, I think. Oh, maybe he did. I don't even remember that. Mm, I think that's the only place I know him from. Uh, <laughs> Big Sir suffers from a genetic anomaly that caused him to grow to incredible proportions, but left him mentally handicapped. He's equipped with a high-tech suit of armor created by the Monitor. Yes, that the Monitor. He was once tricked <laughs> into combat with Barry Allen, the Flash, leaving the Flash disfigured. Multiman's questions about Big Sir's genius is a reference to Big Sir's temporarily heightened intelligence, granted by the inhabitants of Gorilla City, home of the Flash's enemy Gorilla. Rilla Grodd in issues of The Flash Volume 1. Now, him, I do know because I have just read The Trial of the Flash. Ah, okay. See, I, I've never read those issues. I've read a lot of The Trial, but I've never read those issues of Big Sur. So I always had a hard time reconciling this doof guy, mm. right, with this horrible beating that Barry Allen received. And then even even um, the, the Who's Who entry was just sort of like makes Big Sur look friendly, even though he's huge. Is he vicious? Yes. Was it an accident? No, he beats the shit out of him with a mace. God, man. He takes his uh, his mask off and he's unrecognizable as Barry Allen. He's got that much puffy skin and blood and damage to him. He has to go to Gorilla City for Grodd to operate on him to save his life. And in the process of doing so, Barry gets his face changed, which leads into the end of the Trial of the Flash when he goes off to live happily ever after with Iris, at least until the Crisis on Infinite Earth happens. So the big sir in this was quite a shock, considering I only read those Trial of the Flash issues last week, again, after Comixology just had a recent Flash sale. Because, yeah, I mean, he ends up being a nice guy when mm-hmm. um, what the Flash does is he takes him to Gorilla City to try and fix um, what's wrong with him. And the gorillas enhance his intelligence and he comes back and he helps Barry and then retires off on his own. He says, I'm not going to wear the suit anymore. The gorillas have fixed me. I can live a perfectly happy life. So he gets a reasonably happy ending at the end of the Trial of the Flash. Wow. Okay. 
Okay. That uh, I just learned something, folks. Look at that. Clue Master, a former foe of the Batman. Clue Master is in many ways similar to the Riddler, a former game show host who deliberately leaves clues as to his crimes. Clue Master enjoys combat and always keeps a variety of devices on hand to use on his opponents. Years later, he was shown to be the father of the spoiler in Chuck Dixon's magnificent run on Robin. Oh, man, that book is exceptional. That, yep. There you go. There was the height of my Batman phase was the Robin, when Robin and Nightwing and Birds of Prey were all being written by Chuck Dixon. Mm-hmm. Those, were, those were my favorite Batman books actually those yep. three titles that didn't star batman i love what they did with this character and i love his i love his costume with like instead of wearing the bat belt he has all these like cylinders attached to his chest which he knows which one to pull and throw in fact he's holding two of them on the cover there and i've always loved that mask that he wears which is just basically you know almost like a cowboy bandana wrapped yeah. around his face it's just a dick turpin bandana isn't it yeah i've always thought that looked cool and in and, and seeing it on this character inspired me when i was a kid i used to draw you know characters for you know role-playing games or whatever i would use that same sort of cloth across the face quite frequently uh, for characters and it was all inspired from the clue master hmm. i like the clue master he is shit in <laughs> in that way that he is a second rate riddler and the riddle is not first rate let's be honest right <laughs> but you know he, there's a funness to him and i think dixon did an awful lot to give him a personality <clears throat> yeah and making the spoiler come out of that which is a, which is a clever name to play off of his uh, off of her father mm-hmm. you know, her original mission was simply to take as she took on the spoiler her original mission was just to capture him and then it spun into this wonderful wonderful storyline with stephanie brown and all the different various things they did with her over the years so it's uh, a lot of credit to him yeah multi-man has an unusual ability in that whenever he dies he resurrects with a different random superpower for years he was a thorn in the side of the challenges of the unknown he's also prone to bouts of depression which they do actually tell you in this issue but that i know nothing about multi-man me either and i and i think the depression thing actually may have started here i don't really know now i like you comicsology gets me all the time with the sales. I just <laughs> recently bought the, the Challengers of the Unknown collection, the big color one there. The Jack Kirby one. Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, whoever the original, yeah, it was Kirby who did originally, I think. I've even got the showcase, which I tried to sit down and read one day, but sometimes when you read one of these older comics in black and white, if color's an important factor, yeah. Challengers of the Unknown, you, you got to know their hair color to know which character is which. It's sort of like trying to read Metal Men in black and white. It doesn't work. Yeah. So I bought the color collection. I haven't read it yet. And I'm curious to learn more about Multiman. I just don't know anything about this guy no. other than what I've learned from Justice League uh, International. Yeah, just just coming from this issue, he seems like he's, he's quite interesting. It is it is interesting that that what you just said about colour and black and white. It's like Neil Adams' Batman stuff works much better in black and white than it does in colour. But something mm. like this, I can't imagine would work terribly well in black and white. Yeah, I, I, again, so uh, looking at my showcases on my shelves here, I've, you know, the, the Batman Outsiders, call it Batman and the Outsiders collection of black mm. and white, worked great. Jim Aparo's art is gorgeous. I could completely follow it. Marvel team up again perfectly fine but when you get to books where the colors of the characters are important again like Metal Men or Challenge of the Unknown and stuff like that it's really hard to follow it doesn't really work that well no so, and I do love a couple of minutes ago how you said this issue made Multiman seem really interesting no no it didn't it made him seem like a complete <laughs> jerk and like and like I, again just like why is this guy even around what use is he on the team he's got that interesting thing about him suffering from depression which is probably a lot more relevant nowadays that True. people are actually starting to talk about mental illness and addressing it instead of just ignoring it and hoping it will go away. So I felt that was quite an interesting character moment. Well, it is an interesting moment, and I'm sure Justice League International will handle that delicately. Oh, I'm sure they will, actually, yeah. And really delve into the, the depth of depression. I'm sure they'll handle it in a mature way later. I'm, I'm sure they'll cover it magnificently. <laughs> 
Clock King ran afoul of Green Arrow. Clock King uses his knowledge of clocks to aid his robbery schemes. The Clock King is one of those villains who is utter shit, and yet somehow Batman the Animated Series made him great. He was in the animated series? Yeah, yeah they, they did an episode with Clock King, yeah. Was he wearing this costume? Because this is my favorite costume of anyone in the book. He was not wearing this costume, but he was wearing a very similar one. Okay. Uh, have you never seen that episode? I well, there's, I haven't seen many Batman animated series, actually. All of them I've seen were exceptional, but I just haven't seen that many of them. Yeah, he's more of a suit and tie wearer, you know, like the Riddler with his, his green suit and tie yep. with the, yep. the question marks on. But his glasses are designed to look like the faces of a clock. Oh, that's clever. Okay. And, yeah, and he's he actually did quite a good job with him. It's it's not a bad episode. I mean, he, he never makes it into the pantheon of recurring villains. From the way the, the, this character designed at this point, you know, he's basically wearing a blue bodysuit that's got a bunch of clock faces on it, and he's you know, it's it's Silver Age based characters. You've got green boots and a green briefs and a green cape. But the most interesting thing is his face. His entire face is like a Timex watch clock face, which hmm. in comic book form looks great. In three dimensional, it would have to either be completely flat or form fit around his face which would make it look ridiculous so in comic book form though i love the look of this character like this is totally the look i would expect to see in a batman brave in the bold cartoon mm. as you know being the villain from the opening teaser or something it's just it's that gloriously ridiculous i yeah. love it that's probably why they made it his specs in in the show because they sure. are flat so that's probably yeah. easier for them to be able to do it i love that his real name is is temple fugit is it really? Is that's the Clock King's <laughs> real name, which I thought that that's clever. I like that. That was funny. That is really nice. Bruce just a regular guy with an aptitude for technology. Shared a prison cell with major disaster, eventually will be called the Mighty Bruce. <laughs> Why does that sentence not end with the word Campbell? Well, okay, there you go, yeah. Now, didn't, oh gosh, I should have looked at it. Didn't Jim Carrey have a movie about... Bruce um, Almighty. Bruce Almighty, yeah, 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 there you go. <laughs> so that works as well, yeah. First yeah. post-crisis appearance for Big Sir, Clock King, and Multiman. Ah, okay. Well, that also fits with, with uh, Big... Well, I, I was going to say, it fits with Big Sur being completely different, being his post-crisis, they could attribute to that. But they actually take the time to say he used to be a genius. So they, they're just undoing that change to the character. But either way, super fun. Thank you so much for that recap, Andy. I really appreciate it. It's almost like you did your homework and everything. Yeah, they would never have known if you'd have fixed it in editing. That's true. If I had, if only I had. Oh, if there was some way to go back in time and fix that. Oh, well, there's no way to do it. Oh, well. Anyway, folks, we're going to move on to the moment you've all been waiting for. We've talked about this issue. Nothing happens, and it's just a bunch of jokes. So we've got to now figure out which one is the best one in what I like to call... Pwahaha Award. This is where we're going to nominate the funniest moment in this issue. Both myself and Andy are going to pick a moment, and only one are going to be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Andy, you're the guest, unfortunately for everyone listening. What is your pick for the Bwahaha moment? You know, why would anyone want to make a complete stranger look like a total fool? I just, I don't understand why anyone would do that. I just stand back and let you do the work, sir. <laughs> Uh, mine wasn't so much a, a laugh out loud moment, but there was a, a quiet giggle when after name dropping Batman throughout the entire issue on page 17, panel two, Blue Beetle says, you know, you're getting more like Batman every day. And Martian Manhunter says, after leading this stream for several months, I think I understand why Batman is the way he is. That genu that genuinely made me smile. And it was okay. more of a, a more of a subtle gag than a, a laugh out loud belly laugh. And I tend to like subtle. So I'm going for that one. 
All right. Fair enough. That is a very funny moment. It's a good one. I mean, it's not the funniest, but it's good. It's good. My favorite is page nine. The, for the most part, the entire page nine, it's the, the talking heads page between Guy Gardner and Mr. Miracle, where Guy is just purposely trying to piss off Mr. Miracle. And, uh, Mr. Miracle says, Guy, I really don't need your help. Why don't you go back and antagonize the others for a while? And Guy says, nah, I'd rather stay here and antagonize you. <laughs> Why, Guy? I didn't know you cared. Yeah, I'm a real sweetheart, ain't I? And you get that again. That shit-eating, toothy grin, celebrating his dickishness. And that just makes me laugh my ass off every single time. So, this is the point where we have to decide which one of us walks away with the prize. I do like your bit, I'll tell you that, because it is a good continuing theme of Batman throughout the issue where they talk about him. Yeah, but if if the award is for genuinely funniest moment that makes you laugh, then I very begrudgingly have to uh, give it to you. You know what? I will take that because it is funnier. Yeah. And really, we've been celebrating Guy Gardner this whole issue. Yeah. We've so, said yeah. many, many times that Guy Gardner is the funniest in this book. So I really do think he should be the one to go home with a blah ha award this month. Yeah, I'm fine with that. All right, folks. There you go. Uh, the important thing to walk away from here, remember, is that Andy lost and Shag won. But anyway, <laughs> the real winner here is Guy Gardner. The real winner here is you, the listeners. Oh, isn't that cute? <laughs> well, folks, uh, congratulations to Guy Gardner. Guy, wear your Bwahaha Award with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Well, folks, um, you know, we talked a lot about editing and fixing things in post, but uh, hopefully, thanks to the wonders of audio editing, you just missed out on the technical problems we had. <laughs> Not the bits where Andy didn't know what he was doing, but the parts where we just had a technical problem. So, Andy, is your computer okay now? I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave. <laughs> Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, dude. Okay, I think we've lost Andy. Um, wow. No, no, it's all right. I've cleaned out the system. I've flushed that away. I don't know what that was. Old data. Pay it no mind. Yeah, that, that Bruce fella, he showed up and he hit it. Uh, and he pressed a bunch of buttons. I don't think he really knew what he was doing, to be brutally honest with you. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it seems okay again. Did he give you a sense that he might be mighty? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Stop it! I told you! He's not mighty. He's not the messiah. He's a shit computer expert. <laughs> Well, folks, we're going to give Andy a minute to uh, go through his system and see if he can flush out all the Hal comments. And uh, while he's getting that squared away, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called Justice Log. Alright, before we get rolling with the feedback, just a little bit of news. There's an article recently over on CBR entitled, How Exactly Did Mr. Miracle Get on the Justice League? Look at that! This is a topic we've been talking about for two years on the show here. The article is written by Brian Cronin. Check it out over on CBR.com. And uh, my thanks to several folks for bringing this article to my attention. And specifically, my thanks to Tim Price, who first posed this question to us about two years ago. Thanks, Tim. And since we're talking about you folks, I recently had the pleasure of hanging out with Joe Tanello, our resident Ted Cord Blue Beetle cosplayer. Had a great time hanging out in Nashville, and it was wonderful to meet him face to face. Along those same lines, the day this episode is released, I'll be hanging out at the Baltimore Comic Con, hanging out with some of the past guests of this show and future guests. Be sure to check out our social media for JLI Podcast, or you can find me as Firestorm Fan or Once Upon a Geek, where I hopefully will be posting some pictures from the con. 
Finally, DC Comics has released their subscription app. We've all been waiting for it. It's called DC Universe. And if you go out there and check it out, the first six issues of the JLI comic are out there for your reading pleasure. So be sure to check that out. Let DC Universe folks know that you want to read more JLI issues. Now, as we get into your feedback, folks, remember, get out on the social media. Use our hashtag PoundFWPodcast, or better yet, tag us at JLI Podcast. As I said earlier, it is all about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. You are truly a fantastic group, and I feel honored to be part of this fandom. Now, remember, when you're posting your comments, if you're outside of the United States, let me know. We'll assign you the appropriate embassy, which is good to know, too, because if you're international, we have to filter iTunes to see your reviews. Speaking of which, let's talk about iTunes reviews. Right now, we're up to 51 iTunes reviews. But folks, we could really use some more. So please, please, please head out there to iTunes and leave us a review. It only takes us a couple of seconds. It'll really help raise the profile of the show. And as a thank you, we'll read your entire review on the air, which this next review took advantage of because this one's a long one, folks. <laughs> we got one from Herb Fung from the Canadian Embassy. He wrote, Hi Shy, just want to say I really enjoy your podcast covering this era of the Justice League. My personal history with this book had started late in the pre-crisis JLA book. I had subscribed to some of DC's mailing service at the time, but one of the books were cancelled, so I selected JLA to fill out the remainder number of books left in that subscription that year. So I saw the end of the Detroit Era League at the time. Shortly after that, I discovered direct market comic shops, particularly Golden Age Collectibles Vancouver, and then Tasmanian Comics in Burnaby. It was here that my eye and my poor wallet was truly open to comic book collecting. I latched on to DC early, probably due to the character recognition from my exposure to the Super Friends cartoon back in the day. When Crisis on Infinite Earths launched, I was astounded by the event and story, and it goes to follow with the relaunch of the new DCU I was all in, including the Justice League books. The house ads were my avenue to explore more mature-themed books, particularly the miniseries. To some degree, I wanted to have proof that the books I bought weren't just kid stuff. There should be a podcast for that kind of stuff. Jay Jones is proud of me to do one. I keep thinking about doing it. I wonder if there's any audience interest in that. I do remember picking up Sandman number one, but I think it was a bit out there for me. Plus, in the new format pricing as a regular title, I decided against picking up the title. I did end up regretting that decision, but I've since picked up the Absolute Editions. I have to confess, in recent months, i put off listening to all podcasts, but only just recently have I been catching up. I regret hearing the Monitor Duty segment will be dropped. I always appreciate it as it gives me context and reminds me of those books. At times, I can even remember buying some of those books. I can't say I have a great memory, but often when I look at the book from the past, I can remember moments in the store where I bought them. Perhaps this segment could continue to live in the podcast notes and links. It's a great resource for those of us who bought the books in the, new in the day. Anyway, look forward to future episodes. I very much appreciate the analysis and recaps from you and your guests as it's a great way to rediscover this title. Oh, well, thank you, Herb. That was incredible kind of you to say so. Well, yes, it is sad to see the Monitor Duty segment go, but we've really got to shorten up some things so we can cover two issues each episode. But I will tell you, if you go out to Mike's Amazing World of Comics and go to the newsstand feature, you can look up any month in the last century and look at what comics were on the shelves that week it is or that month. It's absolutely amazing. And that's where I was pulling all this information from anyway. So be sure to check that out. All right, folks, now we're going to dive into your feedback on the last episode where we covered Justice League International number 22. My guest was Paul Hicks from the Australian Embassy. Now we're going to be pulling your comments from our website, email, social media, all that kind of stuff. Now I'm just going to be reading bits and pieces of your comments because you guys left so much amazing feedback. I could never get through it in just one episode. So first off is Ryan 
Gin Daily from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It does shows such as Cheerscast and Batman Nightcast and others. And on the last episode, Paul and I indicated that we didn't think Ryan was still listening to this show. Well, Ryan arrived, left us a comment, proved that we were wrong. He does still listen, which really surprised me, quite frankly, because he was on our first episode as a guest, and I figured he thought he was just too good for us after that. And Ryan hates nice things, so there's that. And then Paul, of course, uh, again, our guest from last episode from the Australian Embassy, was kind enough to follow up Ryan's comments with some really inappropriate statements about uh, having sex and fish genitalia. So, uh, way to represent your continent, Paul. Thanks for that. Then we heard from Craig McDonald, who was quoting Oberon from last issue. He says, did he just say kill? Wait a minute. Did he just say giant? One of my favorite JLI issues. Got to agree, Craig. That one was a blast. Then we heard from David Ace Gutierrez, executive producer of Pod Dylan and owner and operator of the Katana Banana. And he says, terrific guest for this issue. And Shag, I urge you to try the Perez era. Wonder Woman, lots of mythology, and Wonder Woman world building with a great supporting cast. Wonder Woman will win your heart. Well, thanks for that recommendation, David. Then we heard from Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, who does shows such as the JLU cast and currently the House of Frankenstein and more. Chris writes, this was a fun issue. Well, the Oberon part was fun. Around this time was when comics seemed to open up the, quote, good guys killing their opponents. I can't recall the JLA ever wiping out villains before, although someone, probably Zoom, could perhaps point that out to me. Maybe the Apolexians at, at different points were considered dead when the Justice League defeated them, before it was retconned that their minds went back to their homeworld. Anyway, the influence of murderous heroes like Wolverine and the Punisher is making its way over to DC more frequently at this point. Next year, Batman would straight up shoot the Joker's goons with the car-mounted machine guns in the film. At least there was some dialogue toward the drastic measures the League took here, but it's interesting to note the League has now left behind its entirely squeaky clean image. As Cindy and I covered in the JLU cast in the animated opener, Secret Origins, they straight up murder the alien invaders left and right. Not judging, just marking the signpost. Make a very good point, Chris. Then we heard from Evertom Vieira de Carmo, whose name I probably horribly mispronounced, so I'm terribly sorry about that, from our Brazilian embassy. He says, Love the show. I always see the Beatle as the guy who breaks the tension, kind of like Spider-Man and the Avengers by Brian Michael Bendis. That's a good point, Evertom. I wonder if Bendis was inspired by Blue Beetle. And then he says, Also in the podcast, uh, in the last issue, there was a joke in the Brazilian version that's not in the original comic. When the parademon says, I shall rend you limb from limb, Beatle's answer is, Arms and legs are okay, but there's the fifth one. Oh, my goodness. Uh, that's some fun translation, isn't it? Uh, then Evertom says, I thought that only Blue Beetle could use the BB gun. One of the more little things to make the Blue Beetle smarter than Batman, in my opinion. You know, Evertom, you might be right. I seem to recall something about Blue Beetle's gun being specially designed that so only he could use it. But who knows? Maybe uh, maybe Oberon knew the trick, or maybe that one had been you know deactivated to make it so anyone could use it. Not sure. All right, then we heard from Martin Gray from our Scottish Embassy. He wrote, Paul was a great value as ever, but I don't think that's Sergeant Rock. Oh, oh, because Paul had said he thought he saw Sergeant Rock in the background of the scene. Uh, Martin goes on to say, Back then, DC was sticking to Kaniger's tenant that Frank Rock died from the last bullet fired in the big one. Yeah, I don't think that was Sergeant Rock either. I think uh, Paul was just stretching it. Siskoid then responded to Martin saying, I agree. However, a modern version of Easy Company did show up in the South Pacific during the invasion in the Starman issue. Hmm. Uh, then Siskoid left a comment of his own. Of course, Siskoid's from our Canadian embassy. He's also part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as First Strike Invasion, and very soon he'll be launching the Zero Hour Podcast and several more. He says, of course, I said my piece on the Invasion show last year, but Paul still brought new things to the table. Great show. Thanks. Wow, that's high praise from Siskoid, folks. 
Then we heard from a new listener, Zach. Zach wrote in to say, This summer, I read for the first time Justice League International, and I was blown away by how good this book is. Even though this series is a decade older than me, the humor and story still hold up great. It's my favorite comic series I've read, and I can't wait to read the omnibus again. I recently found your podcast, and I love it, and I've been listening during any free time. Thank you for doing the podcast, and keep up the great work. Aw, well, thank you, Zach. I really appreciate it. Then I heard from Jack Rocha, who sent in a nice note, and also in there, he did identify how to pronounce his name properly. I appreciate that. And hopefully I got it right this time, Jack, and I will promptly forget how to pronounce it correctly before next episode because I'm terrible at pronouncing things. Terribly sorry. Then we heard from, oh, folks, it's Tim Price. It's my good buddy, Tim Price, the man who writes dissertations in which I read to my daughter at night to help her sleep. So we'll see what Tim's got to say this time. Tim says, plenty to love in this issue. Return of McGuire, Zoff, 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 Bowling Ball, and most importantly, product placement Roach Motels. I especially like how McGuire handled the Imskins. They look quite awkward trying to climb the stairs and falling to avoid the bowling ball. Nicely highlights how difficult it is to get around at that shrunken size. And is it me, or are some of them looking atypical for Cahoons. The armor all looks cool, but some of the designs I'm not familiar with as Cahooned armor. Not that I mind at all, I just found it interesting. You know, Tim, I'm not a Legion expert, but you make a good point. I don't recognize those armors and those looks to be specifically Cahoon that I've seen in Legion comics, but as you said, McGuire made it look really cool. All right, now Tim continues. He says, Now, I don't think this was stressed enough. The first half of this superhero comic prominently featured their non-super, non-leader cast member. He's talking about Oberon. He says, Was it striking? Did it bother anyone? Did it seem odd or surprising or offbeat? Or did it seem just like par for the course for this series? In any other comic, this would have been a, quote, special issue. But not in the JLI. It's just another issue, and I love that. Moving on to the final page, I did read the Wonder Woman issue when it originally came out, and I felt like John's and Diana's scene was there solely for Diana. It gives her a chance to reflect on her own penchant for violence, including lethal force, which I still don't get. Did Perez shoehorn it in? Which it feels like. Since issue number one of Diana's series, she's killed monsters and gods, not willy-nilly, but with intent as a warrior. Are they saying Diana's never really thought about the lives she's taken before? Granted, I don't remember the series that well, but it feels like this was, was ground that was covered, and this moment didn't lead to any introspection on Diana's part. Seems like a setup with no payoff. Hmm. Interesting thoughts, Tim. As always, thanks for writing in, buddy. Then we heard from Jimmy McGlinchey in the Irish Embassy. Jimmy, uh, <laughs> Jimmy wrote in, Greetings from the bunker of the Irish Embassy, where we await the reports of the alien invasion with trepidation. I fear for my life here, as the aliens could soon be approaching. Wait, they're mainly in the Pacific Rim countries? Oh, well, I guess I can get out of the bunker now. <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. I always appreciate Jimmy's gags. Uh, Jimmy goes on to say, It was good to see the team going up against a huge threat. The one issue I would have with the characterization was, was Blue Beetle. Sure, he's a fun guy, but when it came to a plan to take out the alien ships, he should have been a bit more professional. Having Scott bark at him not to be so infantile made Beetle seem like a lesser hero, in my opinion, in this case. I think being the fun book made the writing team insert jokes where it wasn't necessary. Jimmy then goes on to say, The crossover elements between JLI and Wonder Woman were handled well here, with some little flubs. For instance, in the first scene with Wonder Woman, it's Scott telling Beetle to control his hormones in JLI, whereas in Wonder Woman, Hawkwoman delivers the line. And Fire and Ice's dialogue in the JLI panel is switched in the Wonder Woman book, so that it's Fire who delivers the Amazon Hussey line in the Wonder Woman as opposed to Ice, which actually made more sense. I couldn't see Ice delivering that line, and it's surprising that it happened in the JLI book. Interesting observation. I didn't notice those switches. Thank you, Jimmy. 
Then we heard from Ward Hill Terry, and uh, sadly, Ward Hill Terry was the butt of Jimmy McGlinchey's joke last episode when he was uh, boom-tubing a bunch of parademons to Ward Hill Terry's house. So Ward Hill Terry responds with, I have nothing to add. McGlinchey said a boom-tube to my house. So now not only do I have to mow the lawn, rotate the compost, fix the roof, and paint the front room, I've got to keep chucking parademons back in the tube. <laughs> Sorry about that, Ward Hill Terry, the sacrifices we all make for podcasting. Then we heard from Nicholas Allhelm, and he says, as I listen to this episode, I came to the realization that this is probably the only issue of the pre-America titled book I have apparently never read. I'm not quite sure how I missed it. It's off to the shop to go and find it now. Nicholas, 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 I am ashamed of you. I hope you have completed your mission and you are now in possession of that issue of Justice League International. I'm just saying, it's kind of embarrassing. You know, I, I, I feel sorry for you. All right. Uh, then we heard from Max Traver. He says, this was a great issue and a fun episode. The love really comes through the speakers. Well, the love for the JLI, not Shag's love for Australia. <laughs> Throw another shrimp on the bobby, Max. Anyway, then we heard from Adam Ackerman, who goes by Centaur, and he's in our Denmark embassy, and he's been writing haikus for the last few episodes. So Adam shares with us, first strike invasion. Oberon saves the HQ. The rest drop spaceships. Well, thank you, Adam. I appreciate that. Then we heard from Robert Starsmore. He posted this cool image on Twitter of uh, this giant collection of JLI issues he bought. And he goes, this is my origin story for the JLI podcast. I've been wanting to check out the JLI era and recently found a shop with a huge 50 cent selection that included a ton of JLI, JLA, JLE. That's awesome, Robert. I hope you're enjoying them. Then I heard from Ethan Ainsworth. Uh, he sent me a picture. He just got his JLI omnibus. Awesome, Ethan. I hope you're enjoying it and hope you haven't murdered anybody with it based on its weight. Heard from Brian Walters. Uh, he's been listening and dropped us a very nice note. Thank you for that, Brian. Then we heard from Brad Glenn from our Australian embassy. He sent us a uh, photo of his wallpaper on his cell phone because on his iPhone, his new background is the JLI omnibus cover. And by the way, Brad, you've got some notifications on your Snapchat. You might want to check them. Uh, and then Brad and the past guest, Paul, both living in Australia, got into a discussion about Foster's Lager. They went back and forth about this for a while, but all I really heard were the words dingo and wallaby. I don't know. Whatever. Then we heard from Gary Paul from the English Embassy. And oh, oh, Gary. Gary's been sending me these private messages, torturing me, torturing my soul with these photos of his amazing JLI collections. Uh, they're British collections by Eagle Moss. They're beautiful. And he just likes to taunt me. So thanks for that, Gary. Really appreciate that. Then we heard from Robert J. Smith, who shared a photo of his JLI action figure collection on his desk. It's really cool. He's assembled a collection of those three and a three-quarter inch figures. They're the Infinite Heroes figures from a couple years back. Uh, so he's got a bunch of these JLI characters on his desk. He even custom created his own Maxwell Lord in a business suit using their version of Maxwell Lord, which was like in a jumpsuit. And he swapped off the heads with the Lex Luthor. It was in a business suit. Very clever. Looks great, Robert. I'm jealous. Then we heard from the folks over at Trick or Treat Radio. This is great. Uh, they are doing an event coming up. It's called the Trick or Treat Radio Masquerade Extravaganza, featuring the Deadites. And it's hosted October 12th in Worcester, Massachusetts. And uh, they, the poster for this thing, it's got the band of the Deadites I, and, and the folks from Trick or Treat Radio, I guess all together. I, I don't know who all the individuals are, so forgive me if I'm getting that part wrong. Are, they are replicating the pose of Justice League International number one. It's fantastic. It looks great. So uh, you got to check that out. Trick or Treat Radio, uh, Masquerade Extravaganza featuring the Deadites. So cool. 
All right, folks, this is the part of the show where I thank everybody who shared our show on their social media timelines, on Facebook, on Twitter. I know it's a long list of names. I say this every single episode, but folks, these people helped show their support and promoted the show. It is so important to me that we recognize these individuals. And you know what? Your name could be here too. All you got to do is share it on Facebook or retweet it on Twitter. And this time out, we're looking at over 70 names of people who helped promote the last episode. You guys are amazing. All right. Our thanks to the 108th Sage, Bowling Green State University Batman Conference, Brad Dade, Brad Glynn, Callum Nower, Cash Flag, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Christopher Warden, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Cosmic Cat Comics, Craig 101, David Ace Gutierrez, David Bayer Jr., DC in the 80s, Dr. Jennifer Schwartz-Levine, Dylan A. Lange, Frederico Hernandez, Geek Brain Popcast, Generation X-Wing Podcast, History of Comics on Film, Jack Rocha, Jared Albrecht, the Yard Sale Artist, Jason Pope, Jeff and Rick Present, Jeffrey Brown, Jeremiah Parker, Joe Crawford, Jonathan Brown, Justice's First Dawn, Keechy Baker, Connell, Christados, Logic EQ, Longbox Crusade, Luke Dobb, Mark Lax, Mark Baker Wright, Married with Comics Podcast, Martin Gray, Matches Baloney, Matthew Cody, Max Romero and his accounts, It's Plastic Man and the Mirror Factory, Michael O'Brien, Mikey Flash, Not Guano Man, Nuno Duarte, Paul Hicks, Professor Frenzy, Darren and Ruth Sutherland and their accounts, Rad Adventures, Trekker Talk, and Xenozoic Xenophiles, Randy Caldwell, Relatively Geeky, Richard Field, Rob Kelly and his accounts, Digest Cast, Mash Cast, Mountain Comics, Pod Dylan, Rob Kelly Creative, Superman Movie Minute, and Treasury Cast, Rod Pruitt, Roger Preeb, Rolled Spine Podcasts, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, Super Ollie, Tim Price, Vishnu Ganon, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Weasel Skull, Willie Yarbrough, Zoom Yukonori. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI Podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, folks, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is amazing. All of you are fantastic. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It was probably Paul Hicks's fault. Seriously, the guy's a mess. So, if I did miss anyone, just drop me a note and let me know. I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. So, please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Best way to do it is go out to our website which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave a comment there in the show post, or you can hit us up on Facebook at Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, and of course, Twitter at JLI Podcast, and email jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Paul, I guess, for helping me cover JLI number 22. And thanks to you, the listeners, for such a great collection of feedback from that last episode, guys. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we'll see how Andy has made out with his computer repairs. Back through the Fire and Water Network. Come back with the Supermates. I said, come back. Back to the House of Frankenstein. The Supermates present four blood-curdling films with an all-star cast. Lon Chaney Jr. I know you'll think I'm crazy, but in a half an hour the moon will rise and... I'll turn into a wolf. Gary Busey. I'm a little too old to be playing the Hardy Boys meet Reverend Werewolf. Christina Ricci. I'd love to have a tame one, but I wouldn't have the heart to cage him. Corey Hain. I want you to turn this into a silver bullet. Bela Lugosi. You should be careful. 
A person can get killed that way. Johnny Depp. No, no, you must believe me. It was a horseman, a dead one. Headless. Peter Cushing. Have you heard of the cult of the undead? Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Do you know what could happen if I meet Dracula in the woods? I'll bite. Oh, no, you gotta stand in line. Plus four monstrous battles with your favorite comic book heroes. I sense you're trying to resist this evil, Batman. Open your mind so I can help you. Destroy me, Sean. Booster Gold, Vampire Slayer. This September and October, come back to the Fire and Water Network and the home of horror and heroes. I believe you're in the house of Dracula right now. No, wrong address. Come back to the house of Franklin Stein. Back. Back. Yes, master. Give me some Dracula. <laughs> Hey folks, Nicholas Prom here. I'll bet you thought I was dead or something. Well, the reports of my demise, or retirement rather, have been greatly exaggerated. Joined by my new co-host, Kurt Lloyd, Comic Reflections is back and better than ever. Coming at you from the Island Station Media Lab in Portland, Oregon, tune in for jokes and insights on comic book history as Kurt and I, and sometimes a guest, tackle a single issue from the Silver or the Bronze Age each and every week. You'll find Comic Reflections on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Podbean. All right, folks, we're back from break, and it does appear that Andy has returned. Did everything go okay with uh, Bruce's handiwork? Yeah, uh, the mighty Bruce. I use that term very loosely. Seems to have done something. I think it was more luck than judgment, to be honest with you. <laughs> Well, Andy, I sincerely appreciate you being here on this episode of the show. Even though I threw you under the bus a couple of times, uh, it was a real pleasure having you. It was nice to be had, Mr. Shagathon. <laughs> Why don't you tell the listeners at home where they can find you on the interwebs, sir? Uh, oh, God, all over the place. Uh, the Fantastic Cast continues onwards. We are rapidly approaching the 1980s. Myself and Stephen Lacey have just cracked 300 episodes and have yet to <laughs> kill each other. <laughs> So it seems to be going okay. Uh, over on twotruefreaks.com, I do the Palace of Glittering Delights, which is just me talking about whatever old culty shit I feel like talking. Uh, very recently, I've covered the old Thunderbirds films. Thunderbirds are go. Those Thunderbirds, not, you know, the car. John Romita's run on Spider-Man, the fourth season of Werewolf, the syndicated season, which was shit, but I covered it anyway. And I'm just working on an animations episode talking about Battle of the Planets and Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, wow. Uh, Michael Bailey and I over on the Fortress of Bailitude.com do the Overlooked Dark Knight, where we look at Batman stories we think don't get the love they deserve. Back over on Two Tree Freaks, Listen to the Prophets goes through every single episode of Deep Space Nine, which I do with Paul Spataro, Bill Robinson, and Dave Wheater. And I think that's it, isn't it? Oh, no, I do Hey Kids comics every now and again, because my son Michael's now left home. But there's an entire back catalogue there of absolutely wonderful shows where you get to listen to a young man become a boy and I keep interrupting him every now and again. <laughs> and uh, if you want past episodes, there's also a great run where you guys covered Firefly over on Shoot Your Face. Oh, yeah. And, I'm, and I mentioned that because I just restarted my rewatch of Firefly again, and I'm going to listen to the show all over again. Yeah, we enjoyed that. Keep flying. Because obviously that's finished because there's very few episodes of Firefly. Right. <laughs> Not a lot. To, as you guys joke throughout the series, you're like, well, this week there's still no news because the show's over. Um <laughs> Although so, there are Andy, now comics and books about Firefly, so... That's true. That's true. Well, folks, Andy is all over the internet, and all kidding 
aside, he is an amazing podcaster. He's, you know, the stuff he's done with his son and he does with a number of other co-hosts, he really is exceptional. And I am truly honored to have him here. He was one of the first people I had in mind when I wanted to do this show. And I'm so glad it came together. Thank you so much for being here, Andy. That's no problem at all. Um, you are a foul mouthed scumbag, according to my wife, but she still let me talk to you. <laughs> And he's not kidding. That's actually true. That is actually true. Yeah. When I met his family, um, I, you know, I'm shaking his, you know, actually, I think we hugged probably or whatever. And you introduced me to your wife and go, Shag's the potty mouth one, honey. And the whole family <laughs> just kind of puts their hand to their mouth going, oh, that's the one. I'm like, yeah. what have I done? Yeah, you know, yeah. and here Andy comes onto my show and just curses left and yes, right, clearly yes, trying to yes. pay me back. Thanks for that. Yeah. Well, th- th- we'll tell the audience the story because I don't know if we've ever mentioned this before because I don't think you and I have ever been on a show one to one before. We've always been with other people but i was listening to you on an episode of views from the long box and i just had it on in the car while i was listening and i was waiting it was some time ago now and you was only a little girl and uh, my wife and daughter just both got in the car because i was picking them up just as you said fuck it <laughs> and there's a part of it that's my fault because you'd been swearing through that entire show so i should really have stopped it and they both just looked at me like angela with you're listening to this now a daughter's just got in the car and my little girl was like oh that's a new word <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, mate. Cheers for that. No problem. As I said, you've repaid me in full with this episode. Uh, so thank you <laughs> yeah, so much for that. The bleep machine's going to be working overtime. I don't even know if I'm going to bleep you, actually. I should, you know, folks, now that we're here at the end, I'll give you a fair warning. This one's probably not safe for work. You might want to wear your earbuds. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Well, this is it. And uh, again, thanks, Andy. Sincerely appreciate it. Folks, come back next month when we cover Justice League International number 24. The last issue of Justice League International. I'm not kidding. What? And we'll have another guest host to cover the issue with me. Who will it be? Sorry, you'll just have to wonder until next month. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. I'm Andy. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make make something something of it? it? Man, the unusual ability that uh, let me. <laughs>